Escape Pond 197 April 29th 2009 Today's story from Babel's Fire and Glory We Fled by Michael Swanwick Warning, this story contains discussion of history, insects and other kinds of politicians. Hello, I'm Alistair and welcome to Escape Pod. This is the last one of this year's Hugo Awards nominee stories. It's called From Babel's Fallen Glory We Fled and it comes to us from Michael Swanick. Michael is a multiple Hugo and Nebula winner who burst onto the scene with the excellent In the Drift and whose most recent collection of short stories entitled, appropriately enough, The Best of Michael Swanick was released last year. Your reader this week is Sarah Tolbert, so sink your suit and get ready to be told a very curious history because it's story time. From Babel's Fallen Glory, We Fled, by Michael Swanwick. Imagine a cross between Byzantium and a termite mound. Imagine a jeweled mountain, slender as an icicle, rising out of the steam jungles and disappearing into the dazzling pearl-gray skies of Gehenna. Imagine that Gaudi, he of Sagrada Familia and other biomorphic architectural whimsies, has been commissioned by a nightmare race of giant black millipedes to recreate Barcelona at the height of its glory, along with touches of the Forbidden City in the 18th century and Tokyo in the 22nd, all within a single miles-high structure. Hold every bit of that in your mind at once. Multiply by a thousand, and you've got only the faintest ghost of a notion of the splendor that was Babel. Now imagine being inside Babel when it fell. Hello. I'm Rosamond. I'm dead. I was present in human form when it happened, and as a simulation, chaotically embedded within a liquid crystal data matrix, then and thereafter up until the present moment. I was killed instantly when the meteors hit. I saw it all. Rosamond means Rose of the World. It's the third most popular female name on Europa, after... Gia and Virginia Dare. For all our elaborate sophistication, we wear our hearts on our sleeves, we Europans. Here's what it was like. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Carlos Caveira sat up, shedding rubble. He coughed, choked, shook his head. He couldn't seem to think clearly. An instant ago, he'd been standing in the chilled and pressurized embassy suite, conferring with Arsenio. Now... How long have I been asleep? Unconscious. Ten hours. His suit. That's me, Rosamond, said. It had taken that long to heal his burns. Now it was shooting wake-up drugs into him. Amphetamines, endorphins, attention enhancers. A witch's brew of chemicals. Physically dangerous. But in this situation, whatever it might be, Cavera would survive by intelligence, or not at all. I was able to form myself around you before the walls ruptured. You were lucky. The others? Did the others survive? 
Their suits couldn't reach them in time. Did Rosamond? All the others are dead. Cavera stood. Even in the aftermath of the disaster, Babel was an imposing structure. Ripped open and exposed to the outside air, a thousand rooms spilled over one another toward the ground. Bridges and buttresses jutted into gaping, smoke-filled canyons created by the slow collapse of hexagonal support beams. This was new data. I filed it under Architecture, subheading Support Systems, with links to Aesthetics and Xenopsychology, in a jumbled geometry that would have terrified Piranesi himself. Everywhere, gleaming black millies scurried over the rubble. Cavera stood. In the canted space about him, bits and pieces of the embassy rooms were identifiable. A segment of wood molding, some velvet drapery now littered with chunks of marble, shreds of wallpaper after a design by William Morris, now curling and browning in the heat. Human interior design was like nothing native to Gehenna, and it had taken a great deal of labor and resources to make the embassy so pleasant for human habitation. The Queen Mothers had been generous with everything but their trust. Cavera stood. There were several corpses remaining as well, still recognizably human, though they were blistered and swollen by the savage heat. These had been his colleagues, all of them. His friends, most of them. His enemies, two, perhaps three. And even his lover, one. Now they were gone. And it was as if they had been compressed into one indistinguishable mass, and his feelings towards them as well, shock and sorrow and anger and survivor guilt all slagged together to become one savage emotion. Cavera threw back his head and howled. I had a reference point now. Swiftly, I mixed serotonin precursors and injected them through a hundred microtubules into appropriate areas of his brain. Deftly, they took hold, and Cavera stopped crying. I had my metaphorical hands on the control knobs of his emotions. I turned him cold. 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 I feel nothing, he said wonderingly. Everyone is dead and I feel nothing. Then, flat as flat, what kind of monster am I? My monster, I said fondly. My duty is to ensure that you and the information you carry within you get back to Europa so I have chemically neutered your emotions. You must remain a meat puppet for the duration of this mission. Let him hate me. I, who have no true ego, but only a facsimile modeled after a human original. All that mattered now was bringing him home alive. Yes. Cavera reached up and touched his helmet with both hands, as if he would reach through it and feel his head to discover if it were as large as it felt. That makes sense. I can't be emotional at a time like this. He shook himself, then strode out to where the gleaming black millies were scurrying by. He stepped in front of one, a least cousin, to question it. The millie paused, startled. Its eyes blinked three times in its triangular face, then, swift as a tickle, it ran up the front of his suit, down the back, and was gone before the weight could do more than buckle his knees. Shit, he said. Then, access the wiretaps. I've got to know what happened. Passive wiretaps had been implanted months ago, but never used, the political situation being too tense to risk their discovery. Now his suit activated them to monitor what remained of Babel's communications network. A demon's chorus of pulsed messages surging through a shredded web of cables. 
chaos, confusion, demands to know what had become of the Queen Mothers. Analytic functions crunched data, synthesized, synopsized. There's an army outside with ziggurat insignia. They've got the city surrounded. They're killing the refugees. Wait. Wait. Kavera took a deep, shuddering breath. Let me think. He glanced briskly about, and for the second time noticed the human bodies, ruptured and parbroiled in the fallen plaster and porphyry. Is one of those, Rosamond? I'm dead, Kavera. You can warn me later. Right now, survival is priority number one, I said briskly. The suit added mood stabilizers to his maintenance drip. Stop speaking in her voice. Alas, dear heart, I cannot. The suit's operating on diminished function. It's this voice or nothing. He looked away from the corpses, eyes hardening. Well, it's not important. Kivera was the sort of young man who was energized by war. It gave him permission to indulge his ruthless side. It allowed him to pretend he didn't care. Right now, what we have to do is... Uncle Vanya's coming, I said. I can sense his pheromones. Picture a screen of beads, crystal lozenges, and rectangular lenses. Behind that screen, a nightmare face like a cross between the front of a locomotive and a tree grinder. Imagine on that face, though most humans would be able to read them, the lineaments of grace and dignity seasoned by cunning and perhaps a dash of wisdom. Trusted advisor to the Queen Mothers, second only to them in rank, a wily negotiator and a formidable enemy. That was Uncle Vanya. Two small speaking legs emerged from the curtain, and he said, Pasha's greetings, Branch. European Vice Consul 12, Cavera, Treacherous Vermin, Branch. 1. Obligations, untranslatable. Grave duty, Branch. 1. Demand, claim, action, Branch. 2. Promise, trust. Speak pigeon, damn you, this is no time for subtlety. The speaking legs were very still for a long moment. Finally, they moved again. The Queen Mothers are dead. Then Babel is no more. I grieve for you. I despise your grief. A thin and chitinous appendage emerged from the beaded screen. From its tripartite claw hung a smooth white rectangle the size of a briefcase. I must bring this to Sister City. Er, absolute trust. What is it? A very long pause. Then, reluctantly. Our library. Your library. This was something new, something unheard of. Kvera doubted the translation was a good one. What does it contain? Our history, our sciences, our ritual dances. A record of kinship dating back to the void, origin, void. Everything that can be saved is here. A thrill of avarice raced through Kvera. He tried to imagine how much this was worth and could not. Values did not go that high. However much his superiors screwed him out of, and they would work very hard indeed to screw him out of everything they could, what remained would be enough to buy him out of debt, and to do the same for a wife and their children after them as well. He did not think of Rosamond. You won't get through the army outside without my help, 
he said. I want the right to copy. How much did he dare ask for? Three-tenths of one percent, assignable solely to me, not to Europa, to me. Uncle Vanya dipped his head, so they were staring face to face. You are an evil creature, faithless. I hate you. Kavara smiled. A relationship that starts out with mutual understanding has made a good beginning. A relationship that starts without trust will end badly. That's as it may be. Kavara looked around for a knife. The first thing we have to do is castrate you. This is what the genocide saw. They were burning pyramids of corpses outside the city when a Europan emerged, riding a gelded least cousin. The soldiers immediately stopped stacking bodies and hurried toward him, flowing like quicksilver, calling for their superiors. The Europan drew up and waited. The officer who interrogated him spoke from behind the black glass visor of a delicate-legged war machine. He examined the Europan's credentials carefully, though there could be no serious doubt as to his species. Finally, reluctantly, he signed, You may pass. That's not enough, the Europan, Kavera, said. I'll need transportation, an escort to protect me from the wild animals in the steam jungles, and a guide to lead me to... His suit transmitted the sign for Starport, Eret, Trust for All. The officer's speaking legs thrashed in what might be best described as scornful laughter. We will lead you to the jungle, and no further, hopefully to die, treacherous, non-millipede. Neutered least cousins were beneath their notice. They didn't even wear face curtains, but went about naked for all the world to scorn. Look who talks of treachery, the European said. But of course I did not translate these words. And with a scornful wave of one hand, rode his neuter into the jungle. The genocides never bothered to look closely at his mount. Black pillars billowed from the corpse fires into a sky choked with smoke and dust. There were hundreds of fires and hundreds of pillars, and combined with the low cloud cover, they made all the world seem like the interior of a temple to a vengeful god. The soldiers from Ziggurat escorted him through the army, and beyond the line of fires where the steam jungles waited, verdant and threatening. As soon as the green darkness closed about them, Uncle Vanya twisted his head around and signed, Get off me, vast humiliation, lack of trust. Not a chance, Kavera said harshly. I'll ride you till sunset and all day tomorrow and for a week after that. Those soldiers didn't fly here, or you'd have seen them coming. They came through the steam forest on foot, and they'll be stragglers. The going was difficult at first, and then easy, as they passed from a recently forested section of the jungle into a stand of old growth. The boles of the trees here were as large as those of the redwoods back on earth, some specimens of which are as old as five thousand years. The way wended back and forth. Scant sunlight penetrated through the canopy, and the steam quickly drank in what little light Kavir's headlamp put out. Ten trees in they would have been hopelessly lost had it not been for the suit's navigational functions and the mapsats that fed it geodetic mathscapes accurate to a fingerspan of distance. Kavir pointed this out. Learn now, he said. The true value of information. Information has no value, Uncle Vanya said. Without trust. Kavera laughed. In that case, you must, all against your will, trust me. To this, Uncle Vanya had no answer. 
At nightfall, they slept on the sheltered side of one of the great parasequoias. Cavera took two refrigeration sticks from the saddlebags and stuck them upright in the dirt. Uncle Vanya immediately coiled himself around his and fell asleep. Cavera sat down beside him to think over the events of the day, but under the influence of his suit's medication, he fell asleep almost immediately as well. All machines know that humans are happiest when they think least. In the morning, they set off again. The terrain grew hilly, and the old growth fell behind them. There was sunlight and despair now, bounced and reflected about by the ubiquitous jungle steam and by the synthetic diamond coating so many of this world's plants and insects employ for protection. As they traveled, they talked. Cavero was still complexly medicated, but the dosages had been decreased. It left him in a melancholy, reflective mood. It was treachery, Cavero said. Though we maintained radio silence out of fear of ziggurat troops, my passive receivers fed him regular news reports from Europa. The High Watch did not simply fail to divert a meteor. They let three rocks through. All of them came slanting low through the atmosphere aimed directly at Babel. They hit almost simultaneously. Uncle Vanya dipped his head. Yes, he mourned. It has the stench of truth to it. It must be reliable, a fact, absolutely trusted. We tried to warn you. You had no worth, trust, worthy of trust. Uncle Vanya's speaking legs registered extreme agitation. You told lies. Everyone tells lies. No. We of the Hundred Cities are truthful. Truthful never lie. If you had, Babel would be standing now. No, no, no. Lies are the lubricant in the social machine. They ease the friction when two moving parts mesh imperfectly. Aristotle, asked what those who tell lies gain by it, replied, that when they speak the truth, they are not believed. For a long moment, Kaver was silent. Then he laughed mirthlessly. I almost forgot that you're a diplomat. Well, you're right. I'm right. And we're both screwed. Where do we go from here? To Sister City, er, Absolute Trust, Uncle Vanya signed, while... You've said more than enough, his suit, me, whispered into Kavera's ear. Change the subject. A stream ran, boiling down the center of the dell. Run off from the mountains, it would grow steadily smaller until it dwindled away to nothing. Only the fact that the air above it was at, at close to 100% saturation had kept it going this long. Kavera pointed. Is that safe to cross? If, leap over safe, then safe. Best not, reliable distrust. I didn't think so. They headed downstream. It took several miles before the stream grew small enough that they were confident to jump it, and then they turned towards Ararat. The Europans had dropped GPS pebble satellites in low Gehenna orbit shortly after arriving in the system and making contact with the indigenes. But I don't know from what source Uncle Vanya derived his sense of direction. It was inerrant, however. The mapsats confirmed it. I filed that fact under unexplained phenomena, with tentative links to physiology and navigation. Even if both my companions died and the library were lost, this would still be a productive journey, provided only that Europan's searchers could recover me within ten years before my data lattice began to degrade. For hours, Uncle Vanya walked, and Kavera rode in silence. Finally, though, they had to break to eat. I fed Kavera nutrients intravenously, and the illusion of a full meal through somatic shunts. 
Vanya burrowed furiously into the earth and emerged with something that looked like a grub the size of a poodle, which he ate so vigorously that Kaver had to look away. I filed this under Xenoecology, subheading Feeding Strategies. The search for knowledge knows no rest. Afterwards, while they were resting, Uncle Vanya resumed their conversation, more formally this time. For what purpose, reason? Branch. European Vice Consul 12. Kavera, not trusted. Branch. Voyaging, search for trust, action. Branch. 1. Nest. Europa, untranslatable. Branch. 2. Violate. Absolute resistance. Branch. 1. Nest. Trust. Branch. 2. Gehenna. Trust. Branch. Home. Trust. Why did you leave your world to come to ours? I simplified. Translated. Except he believes that humans brought their world here and parked it in orbit. This was something we had never been able to make the Millies understand. That Europa, large though it was, was not a planetlet, but a habitat. A ship, if you will. Though by now well over half a million inhabitants lived in tunnels burrowed deep in its substance. It was only a city, however, and its resources could not last forever. We needed to convince the Gehennans to give us a toehold on their planet if we were, in the long run, to survive. But you knew that already. We've told you this before. We came looking for new information. Information is free, valueless, despicable. Look, Kavera said, we have an information-based economy. Yours is based on trust. The mechanisms of each are not dissimilar. Both are expansive systems. Both are built on scarcity, and both are speculative. Information, or trust, is bought, sold, borrowed, and invested each, therefore, requires a continually expanding economic frontier, which ultimately leaves the individual so deep in debt as to be virtually enslaved to the system. You see? No. All right. Imagine a simplified capitalist system. That's what both our economies are at root. You've got a thousand individuals, each of whom makes a living by buying raw materials, improving them, and selling them a profit. With me so far? Banya signaled comprehension. The farmer buys seed and fertilizer and sells crops. The weaver buys wool and sells cloth. The chandler buys wax and sells candles. The price of their goods is the cost of the materials plus the value of their labor. And the value of his labor is the worker's wages. This is a simple market economy. It can go on forever. Uh, the equivalent on Gehenna would be the primitive family states you had long ago, in which everybody knew everybody else, and so trust was a simple matter and directly reciprocal. Startled, Uncle Vanya signed, How did you know about our past? Europeans value knowledge. Everything you tell us, we remember. The knowledge had been assembled with enormous effort and expense, largely from stolen data, but no reason to mention that. Kavera continued. Now imagine that most of those workers labor in ten factories, making the food, clothing, and other objects that everybody needs. The owners of these factories must make a profit, so they sell their goods for more than they pay for them, the cost of materials, the cost of labor, and then the profit, which we can call added value. But because this is a simplified model, there are no outside markets. The goods can only be sold to the thousand workers themselves, and the total cost of the goods is more than the total amount they have been paid collectively for their materials and their labor. So how can they afford it? They go into debt. Then they borrow money to support that debt. The money is lent to them by the factories, selling them goods on credit, 
there's not enough money, not enough real value in the system to pay off the debt. So it increases and it continues to increase until it can no longer be sustained. Then there's a catastrophic collapse, which we call a depression. Two of the businesses go bankrupt and their assets are swallowed up by the survivors at bargain prices, thus paying off their own indebtedness and restoring equilibrium into the system. In the aftermath of which, the cycle begins again. What has this to do with, beloved city, Babel, mother of trust? You're every public action involved in exchange of trust, yes? And every trust that was honored heightened the prestige of the Queen Mothers, and hence the amount of trust they embodied for Babel itself? Yes. Similarly, the Queen Mothers of other cities, including those cities which were Babel's sworn enemies, embodied enormous amounts of trust as well? Of course. Was there enough trust in all the world to pay everybody back if all the Queen Mothers called it in at the same time? Uncle Vanya was silent. So that's your explanation for a lot of things. Earth sent us here because it needs new information to cover its growing indebtedness. Building Europa took enormous amounts of information, most of it proprietary, and so we Europans are in debt collectively to our home world and individually to the lords of the economy on Europa. With compound interest, every generation is worse off and thus more dependent than the one before. Our need to learn is great and constantly growing. Strangers without trust, Europa, treacherous vermin, branch, can, should, untranslatable, branch, one, demand, claim, negative action, branch, two, defy, untranslatable, absolute lack of trust, branch, one, those who command trust, branch, two, those who are unworthy of trust. He asks why Europa didn't simply declare bankruptcy, I explained, default on its obligations, and nationalize all the information received to date, in essence. The simple answer was that Europa still needed information that could only be beamed from Earth, and that the ingenuity of even half a million people could not match that of an entire planet, and thus their technology must always be superior to ours, and that if we reneged on our debts, they would stop beaming plans for that technology, along with their songs and plays and news of what was going on in countries that had once meant everything to our great-great-grandparents. I watched Guevara struggle to put this all in the simplest possible form. Finally, he said, because no one would ever trust us again if we did. After a long stillness, Uncle Vanya lapsed back into Pigeon. Why did you tell me this untrustworthy story? To let you know that we have much in common. We can understand each other. But not trust. No. But we don't need to trust. Mutual self-interest will suffice. Days passed. Perhaps Cavera and Uncle Vanya grew to understand each other better during this time. Perhaps not. I was able to keep Cavera's electrolyte balances stable and short-circuit his feedback processes so that he felt no extraordinary pain. But he was feeding off his own body fat, and that was beginning to run low. He was comfortably starving to death. I gave him two weeks tops. And he knew it. He'd have to be a fool not to, and I had to keep his thinking sharp if he was going to have any chance of survival. Their way was intersected by a long, low ridge, and without comment, Kavera and Uncle Vanya climbed up above the canopy of the steam forest and the cloud of moisture it held into the clear air. Looking back, 
Kavira saw a gully in the slope behind them. Its bottom washed free of soil by the boiling runoff and littered with square and rectangular stones, but not a trace of hexagonal beams. They had just climbed the tumulus of a fallen ancient city. It lay straight across the land, higher to the east and dwindling to the west. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings, Vera said. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Lugavanya said nothing. Another meteor strike. What were the odds of that? Uncle Vanya said nothing. Of course, given enough time, it would be inevitable, if it predated the High Watch. Uncle Vanya said nothing. What was the name of this city? Very old name. Forgotten. First trust. Uncle Vanya moved as if to start downward, but Kavir stopped him with a gesture. There's no hurry, he said. Let's enjoy the view for a moment. He swept an unhurried arm from horizon to horizon, indicating the flat and unvarying canopy of vegetation before them. It's a funny thing. You'd think that this being one of the first cities your people built when they came to this planet, you'd be able to see the ruins of the cities of the original inhabitants from here. The millipede's speaking arms thrashed in alarm. Then he reared up into the air, and when he came down, one foreleg glinted silver. Faster than a human eye could follow, he had drawn a curving and deadly tarsi sword from a camouflaged belly sheath. Kavera's suit flung him away from the descending weapon. He fell flat on his back and rolled to the side. The sword's point missed him by inches. But then the suit flung out a hand and touched the sword with an electrical contact it had just extruded. A carefully calculated shock threw Uncle Vanya back, convulsing, but still fully conscious. Kavera stood. Remember the library? he said. Who will know of Babel's greatness if it's destroyed? For a long time, the millipede did nothing that either Kavera or his suit could detect. At last he signed. How did you know? Absolute shock, treacherous, and without faith. Our survival depends on being allowed to live on Gehenna. Your people will not let us do so, no matter what we offer in trade. It was important that we understand why. So we found out. We took in your outlaws and apostates, all those who were cast out of your cities and had nowhere else to go. We gave them sanctuary. In gratitude, they told us what they knew. By so saying, Kavera let Uncle Vanya know that he knew the most ancient tale of the Gehenans. By so hearing, Uncle Vanya knew that Kavera knew what he knew. And just so you know what they knew that each other knew and knew was known. Here is the tale of how the true people came to Gehenna. Long did our ancestors burrow down through the dark between the stars, before emerging at last in the soil of Gehenna. From the true home they had come. To Gehenna they descended, leaving a trail of sparks in the black and empty spaces through which they had traveled. The true people came from a world of unimaginable wonders. To it they could never return. Perhaps they were exiles. Perhaps it was destroyed. Nobody knows. Into the steam and sunlight of Gehenna they burst, and found it was already taken. The first inhabitants looked like nothing our ancestors had ever seen, but they welcomed the true people, as the queen mother would a strayed niece daughter. They gave us food. They gave us land. They gave us trust. For a time all was well. 
But evil crept into the thoracic ganglia of the true people. They repaid sisterhood with betrayal and trust with murder. Bright lights were called down from the sky to destroy the cities of their benefactors. Everything the first inhabitants had made, all their books and statues and paintings, burned with the cities. No trace of them remains. We do not even know what they looked like. This was how the true people brought war to Gehenna. There had never been war before, and now we will have it with us always, until our trust debt is repaid. But it can never be repaid. It suffers in translation, of course. The original is told in thirteen exquisitely beautiful aeroglyphs, each grounded on a primal faith motion. But Kivera was talking, with care and passion. Vanya, listen to me carefully. We have studied your civilization and your planet in far greater detail than you realize. You did not come from another world. Your people evolved here. There was no aboriginal civilization. Your ancestors did not eradicate an intelligent species. Those things are all myth. No. Why? Shock. Uncle Vanya rattled with emotion. Ripples of muscle spasms ran down his segmented body. Don't go catatonic on me. Your ancestors didn't lie. Myths are not lies. They are simply an efficient way of encoding truths. We have a similar myth in my religion, which we call original sin. Man is born sinful. Well, who can doubt that? Saying that we are born into a fallen state simply means that we're not perfect, that we are inherently capable of evil. Your myth is very similar to ours, but it also encodes what we call the Malthusian dilemma. Population increases geometrically, while food resources increase arithmetically. So universal starvation is inevitable, unless the population is periodically reduced by wars, plagues, and famines. Which means that wars, plagues, and famines cannot be eradicated, because they are all that keep a population from extinction. But, and this is essential, all that assumes a population that isn't aware of the dilemma. When you understand the fix you're in, you can do something about it. That's why information is so important. Do you understand? Uncle Vanya lay flat upon the ground and did not move for hours. When he finally arose again, he refused to speak at all. The trail the next day led down into a long meteor valley that had been carved by a ground grazer long enough ago that its gentle slopes were covered with soil and the bottomland was rich and fertile. An orchard of grenade trees had been planted in interlocking hexagons for as far in either direction as the eye could see. We were still on Babel's territory, but any arboriculturists had been swept away by whatever military forces from Ziggurat had passed through the area. The grenades were still green. Footnote. Not literally, of course. They were orange. Their thick husks taut, but not yet trembling with the steam-hot pulp that would eventually, in the absence of harvesters, cause them to explode, scattering their arrowhead-shaped seeds or spores. Footnote. Like seeds, the flechettes carried within them surplus nourishment. Like spores, they would grow into a prothalli, which would produce sex organs responsible for what would become the gamete of the eventual plant, all botanical terms, of course, being metaphors for xenobiological bodies and processes, with such force as to make them a deadly hazard when ripe. Not today, however. A sudden gust of wind parted the steam, briefly brightening the valley orchard and showing a slim and graceful trail through the orchard. We followed it down the valley. 
We were midway through the orchard when Kavera bent down to examine a crystal-shelled creature unlike anything in his suit's database. It rested atop the long stalk of a weed. Footnote. Weed is not a metaphor. The concept of an undesired plant growing in cultivated ground is a cultural universal. In the direct sunlight, its abdomen pulsing slightly as it superheated a minuscule drop of black ichor. A puff of steam, a sharp crack, and it was gone. Entranced, Kavera asked, What's that called? A jet, danger, absolute certainty. Then, crack, crack, crack. The air was filled with thin lines of steam, laid down with the precision of a draftsman's ruler, tracing flights so fleet, crack, crack, that it was impossible to tell in which direction they flew, nor did it ultimately, crack, matter. Kavera fell. Worse, because the thread of steam the jet had stitched through his legs severed an organizational note in his suit. I ceased all upper cognitive functions, which is as good to say that I fell unconscious. Here's what the suit did in my, Rosamond's, absence. 1. Slowly rebuilt the damaged organizational node. 2. Quickly mended the holes the jet had left in the fabric. 3. Dropped Cavera into a therapeutic coma. 4. Applied restoratives to his injuries and began the slow and painstaking process of repairing the damage to his flesh, with particular emphasis on distributed traumatic shock. 5. Filed the jet footage under Xenobiology, subheading Insect Analogues, with links to Survival and Steam Locomotion. 6. Told Uncle Vanya that if he tried to abandon Kavera, the suit would run him down, catch him, twist his head from his body like the foul least cousin that he was, and then piss on his corpse. Two more days passed before the suit returned to full consciousness, during which Uncle Vanya took conscientiously good care of him. Under what motivation does not matter. Another day passed after that. The suit had planned to keep Kavera comatose for a week, but not long after regaining awareness, circumstances changed. It slammed him back into full consciousness, heart pounding and eyes wide open. I blacked out for a second, he gasped, then realizing that the landscape about him did not look familiar. How long was I unconscious? Three days, three days, casual certainty. Then, almost without pausing, your suit mechanism alarm talks with the voice of Rosamond de Silva, European Vice Consul 8, uncertainty and doubt. Yes, well, that's because... Kavera was fully awake and alert now. So I said, Incoming. Two millies erupted out of the black soil directly before us. They both had ziggurat insignia painted on their flanks and harness. By good luck, Uncle Vanya did the best thing possible under the circumstances. He reared into the air in fright. Millipoid sapiens' anatomy being what it was, this instantly demonstrated to them that he was a gelding, and in that instant he was almost reflexively dismissed by the enemy soldiers as being both contemptible and harmless. Kavera, however, was not. Perhaps they were brood traders, who had deserted the war with the fantasy of starting their own nest. Perhaps they were a single unit among thousands scattered along a temporary border, much as landmines were employed in ancient modern times. The soldiers had clearly been almost as surprised by us as we were by them. They had no weapons ready. So they fell upon Kavera with their dagger tarsi. His suit, still me, threw him to one side and then to the other as the millies slashed down at him. Then one of them reared up into the air looking astonished, if you knew the interspecies decodes, and fell heavily to the ground. Uncle Vanya stood over the steaming corpse, one foreleg glinting silver. 
The second ziggurat soldier twisted to confront him, leaving his underside briefly exposed. Kavera, or rather his suit, joined both hands in a fist and punched upward through the weak skin of the third sternite behind the head. That was the one which held its sex organs. Disclaimer. All anatomical terms, including sternite, sex organs, and head, are analogs only, unless and until Gehenin life is found to have some direct relationship with Terran life, however tenuous. Such descriptors are purely metaphoric. So it was particularly vulnerable there. And since the suit had muscle-multiplying exoskeletal functions, Ikor gushed all over the suit. The fight was over almost as soon as it had begun. Kavera was breathing heavily, as much from the shock as the exertion. Uncle Vanya slid the Tarsai sword back into its belly sheath. As he did so, he made an involuntary grimace of discomfort. There were times when I thought of discarding this, he signed. I'm glad you didn't. Little puffs of steam shot up from the bodies of the dead millipedes as carrion flies drove their seeds, sperm, eggs, analogs and metaphors, remember, deep into the flesh. They started away again. After a time, Uncle Vanya repeated, Your suit, mechanism, alarm, talks with the voice of Rosamond de Silva, European Vice Consul 8, uncertainty and doubt. Uncle Vanya folded tight all his speaking arms in a manner which meant that he had not yet heard enough and kept them so folded until Kavera had explained the entirety of what follows. Treachery and betrayal were natural consequences of Europa's superheated economy, followed closely by a perfectly rational paranoia. Those who rose to positions of responsibility were therefore sharp, suspicious, intuitive, and bold. The delegation to Babel was made up of the best Europa had to offer, so when two of them fell in love it was inevitable that they would act on it. That one was married would deter neither. That physical intimacy in such close and suspicious quarters, where everybody routinely spied on everybody else, required almost superhuman discipline and ingenuity, only made it all the hotter for them. Such was Rosamond and Kvera's affair. But it was not all they had to worry about. There were factions within the delegation, some mirroring fault lines in the larger society, and others merely personal. Alliances shifted, and when they did, nobody was foolish enough to inform their old allies. Urbano, Rosamond's husband, was a full consul, Cavera's mentor, and a true believer in a minority economic philosophy. Rosamond was an economic agnostic, but a staunch consensus liberal. Cavera could sail with the winds politically, but he tracked the indebtedness indices obsessively. He knew that Rosamond considered him ideologically unsound, and that her husband was growing impatient with his lukewarm support in certain areas of policy. Everybody was keeping an eye out for the main chance. So, of course, Kavera ran an emulation of his lover at all times. He knew that Rosamond was perfectly capable of betraying him. He could neither have loved or respected a woman who wasn't. And he suspected she believed the same of him. If her behavior ever seriously diverged from that of her emulation, when the sex was always best at times he thought it might, he would know she was preparing an attack and could strike first. Kavera spread his hands. That's all. Uncle Vanya did not make the sign for absolute horror. Nor did he have to. After a moment, Kavera laughed, low and mirthlessly. You're right, he said. Our entire system is totally fucked. He stood. Come on. We've got miles to go before we sleep. They endured four more days of commonplace adventure. 
during which they came close to death, displayed loyalty, performed heroic deeds, etc., etc. Perhaps they bonded, although I'd need blood samples and a smidgen of brain tissue from each of them to be sure of that. You know the way this sort of narrative goes, having taught its Gehenan counterpart the usefulness of information. Kavera would learn from Vanya the necessity of trust. An imperfect merger of their two value systems will ensue, in which for the first time a symbolic common ground will be found. Small and transient though the beginning may be, it will augur well for long-term relations between their relative species. That's a nice story. It's not what happened. On the last day of their common journey, Kavera and Uncle Vanya had the misfortune to be hit by a TLMG. A TLMG, or Transient Localized Mud Geyser, begins with an uncommonly solid surface, bolide glazed porcelain earth usually, trapping a small, the radius of a typical TLMG is on the order of 50 meters, bubble of superheated mud beneath it. Nobody knows what causes the excess heat responsible for the bubble. Gehennens aren't curious, and Europans haven't had the budget or the ground access to do the insight to investigations they'd like. The most common guesses are fireworms, thermobacilli, a nesting ground phoenix, and various geophysical forces. Nevertheless, the defining characteristic of TLMGs is their instability. Either the heat slowly bleeds away and they cease to be, or it continues to grow until its force dictates a hyper-rapid explosive release, as did the one our two heroes were not aware they were skirting. It erupted. Kavera was safe as houses, of course. His suit was designed to protect him from far worse. But Uncle Vanya was scalded badly along one side of his body. All the legs on that side were shriveled into tiny black nubs. A clear, viscous jelly oozed between his segment plates. Kavera knelt by him and wept. Drugged as he was, he wept. In his weakened... Then rousing himself. Three times that there was an analgesic paste in the saddlebags before he could be made to understand that he should apply it to his dying companion. The paste worked fast. It was an old Gehennan medicine, which European biochemist had analyzed and improved upon, and then given to Babel as a demonstration of the desirability of European technology. Though the Queen Mothers had not responded with the hope for trade treaties, it had immediately replaced the earlier version. Uncle Vanya made a creaking, groaning noise as the painkillers kicked in. One at a time, he opened all his functioning eyes. Is the case safe? It was a measure of Kavera's diminished state that he hadn't yet checked on it. He did now. Yes, he said with heartfelt relief. The telltales all say that the library is intact and undamaged. No, Vanya signed feebly. I lied to you, Kavera. Not library, greatest shame. Not library, greatest trust. European Vice Consul 12, Kivera, Most Trusted, Branch, Nest, Babel, Untranslatable, Branch, Obedient, Absolute Loyalty, Branch, Lies, Greatest Trust Deed, Moral Necessity, Branch, One, Nest, Babel, Untranslatable, Branch, Two, Untranslatable, Absolute Resistance, Branch, One, Nest, Trust, Branch, Two, Babel, Trust, Branch, Three, Sister City, Er, absolute trust. Branch. Egg case. Protect. Branch. Egg case. Mature. Branch. Babel. Eternal trust. It was not a library, but an egg case. 
swaddled safe within a case that was in its way as elaborate a piece of technology as Cavera's suit, myself, were sixteen eggs, enough to bring to life six queen mothers, nine niece sisters, and one perfect consort. They would be born conscious of the entire gene history of the nest, going back many thousands of years. Of all the things the Europans wished to know most, they would be perfectly ignorant. Nevertheless, so long as the eggs existed, the city nest was not dead. If they were taken to Ur, which had ancient and enduring bonds to Babel, the stump of a new city would be built within which the eggs would be protected and brought to maturity. Babel would rise again. Such was the dream Uncle Vanya had lied for, and for which he was about to die. Bring this to Sister City Ur, absolute trust. Vanya closed his eyes row by row, but continued signing. Brother, friend, Kavera, tentative trust, promise me you will. I promise you can trust me, I swear. Then I will be ghost, king, father, honored, none more honored, Vanya signed. It is more than enough for anyone. Do you honestly believe that? Kavira asked in bleak astonishment. He was an atheist, of course, as are most Europeans, and would have been happier were he not. Perhaps not. Vanya's signing was slow and growing slower. But it is as good as I will get. Two days later, when the starport city of Ararat was a nub on the horizon, the skies opened, and the mists parted to make way for a European lander. Kavera's handler's suits squirted me a bill for his rescue. Steep, I thought, but we all knew which hand carried the whip, and their principals tried to get him to sign away the rights to his story in acquittal. Kavera laughed harshly. I'd already started decushioning his emotions to ease the shock of my removal, and shook his head. Put it on my tab, girls, he said, and climbed into the lander. Hours later, he was in home orbit. And once there, I'll tell you all I know. He was taken out of the lander and put into a jitney. The jitney brought him to a transfer point where a grapple snagged him and flung him to the European receiving port. There, after the usual flawless catch, he was escorted through an airlock and into a locker room. He hung up his suit uplinked all my impersonal memories to a data broker, and left me there. He didn't look back, for fear, I imagine, of being turned into a pillar of salt. He took the egg case with him. He never returned. Here I have hung for days or, or months or centuries, who knows, until your curious hand awoke me and your friendly ear received my tale. So I cannot tell you if the egg case, A, went to Ur which surely would not have welcomed the obligation or the massive outlay of trust being thrust upon it. B. Was kept for the undeniably enormous amount of genetic information the eggs embodied. Or C. Went to Ziggurat, which would pay well, and perhaps in Gehenna territory, to destroy it. Nor do I have any information as to whether Kavera kept his word or not. I know what I think. But then, I'm a Marxist, and I see everything in terms of economics. You can believe otherwise if you wish. That's all. Rosamond. Bye.
History is written by the victors, and sometimes being the victor means nothing more than still being standing when the dust clears. Historical accounts can often give the illusion of a clear narrative, one that has a beginning, a middle, an end. Heroes, villains, and that is, of course, the victor's prerogative. And that is, of course, also a fallacy. Every story is connected to every other story. Every choice influences every other choice. And to use the old truism, one man's anarchist is another man's freedom fighter. Or, to put it another way, if the Sheriff of Nottingham had had a better publicist than Robin Hood, then the popular history of my country would have looked very, very different. I like to think that the most interesting things tend to happen when no one's looking, and I also like to think that often the only people who are looking are writers. I was talking to my best friend earlier today about the shard of ice I think George Bernard Shaw talked about all writers having. Regardless of the situation, there is a little part of you that refuses to commit, that refuses to do anything but stand back and watch and observe. Because after all, everything's good source material. And I think those same principles apply to history. I'm also fascinated by the perspective that Swanick gives Rosamond here. It's very nearly the historical ideal, omnipresent but dispassionate, able to comment but not able to critique, in the moment but not imprisoned by the moment. Of course, that's a luxury we don't have, because if we do, then we find ourselves forced to sacrifice passion for distance. Intellectual distance is often something we can only ever aspire to, because if you go too far, you lose all connection, whilst if you don't go far enough, you lose perspective. It's all a matter of focus, and where you choose to put it. Of course, the real tragedy of Rosamond is she doesn't have very much choice there, at all. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and it's released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, and no derivatives license. All other rights are retained by our authors, and we are not alone. Podcastle.org is home to our fantasy podcast that has just celebrated its 50th episode, while Studipod.org is home to our horror podcast, Over 130 Nightmares, and usually me. If you liked this story, please consider blogging, tweeting, or making cave art about it, or... If your local heritage organisation, like mine, is a little reluctant to let you work on the scary old caves at Dead Man's Face, then consider donating to us at the PayPal link at escapepod.org. Our quote this week is from Isaac Babel. How late I learned the essential things in life. In my childhood, nailed to the Gemara, I led the life of a sage, and it was only later, when I was older, that I began to climb trees. Or to put it another way, have fun. We'll see you next week. Hi everyone, this is Tony C. Smith from Starship Sofa Podcast. I just want to give you a little heads up to what's been happening at Starship Sofa this week. We ran a story by science fiction writer Michael Bishop. It's called Vinegar Peace. And it was wrote two years ago for Michael's son, Jamie Bishop, who unfortunately died at the Virginia Tech shooting. This story means a lot to Starship Sofa and I do hope you'll come over and have a listen to it. There's also a little introduction that Michael wrote that I'll get narrated as well. I'd just like to play that now for you. I wrote Vinegar Peace in August of 2007 because I had to. Our 35-year-old son, Jamie, died on the morning of April 16, 2007, as one of 32 victims of a disturbed shooter on the campus of Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. 
Jamie, an accomplished digital artist who did lovely covers for four or five of my books, was holding forth in room 2007 of Norris Hall in his German class, more than two hours after his eventual murderer had already slain two students in a dormitory on another part of campus. The administration failed to issue a warning, a warning that might well have saved many lives in a timely fashion. However, some of its members secured their own offices and notified their own family members of this initial event, and so the worst school shooting in the history of the United States claimed our son, four other faculty members, including a man, Dr. Librescu, who had survived the Holocaust and who held a table against his classroom door until all his own students could escape. Four of Jamie's students and 21 other young people in Norris Hall not to mention the first two victims in West Ambler Johnston dorm. Another 28 students were wounded by bullets or injured leaping from upper-story windows. Some of these young people will live with their injuries the rest of their lives. All of the administrators, with the exception of a woman who later died of a stroke or heart attack, a death that my wife and I can't help but attribute partially to the stress of living with the mistakes of the president and the other policy group members, remain in their position. So much for accountability, and so much for justice. In any case, vinegar peace grew from this disaster and from a grief that I can't imagine ever laying totally aside. Jerry and I mourn Jamie's loss every day in some private way, and we think continually of all the other parents and loved ones of the slain and injured who will carry a similar burden with them until they die. We think, too, of the parents and loved ones of the dead and wounded from the United States optional war in Iraq, who long for their dead and who pray for their injured with an intensity not a whit different from our own. How ironic that our son died on American soil. How sad the wasted potential and disfigured lives resulting from violence everywhere. And forgive me the inadequacy of these remarks. Clearly, I wrote a story because I could not address either my outrage or my grief in any other way. Mike Bishop. Again, can I say Starship Sova is very honored and so humbled to be allowed to bring this story to a wider audience. You know, I know I speak for the science fiction community when I say our hearts and prayers go out to Mike and Mike's wife, Jerry, and all the families who have to live with this grief every day. You know, I do hope you'll come over to Starship Sova and take a listen to the story. And there's a poem there as well by Michael for Jamie. It would mean a lot to me and everyone at Starship Sova. Thank you.